We'll actually be starting in chapter 15, verse 22, and reading through chapter 16, verse 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened, strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent some time, after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of, because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in their faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Pithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas, 
we ran a straight course to Samothrake, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You may be seated. Good morning. I have really come to love this text very much. It's got several parts to it, but the thing that stood out to me was Timothy. Just those first few verses, but when you look at the whole of the New Testament and Timothy's place in it and what's happened previously, uh, it's really substantial. So I pray that the Lord would minister to us all through looking at the whole text, but, but uh, I'll be just telling you up front, there's quite a bit looking at Timothy. It's really an unspeakable privilege to be loved by God, reconciled to Him through the blood of the cross of Christ, to be made alive in Christ and be included in His family. In the glorious sense that is described in Ephesians chapter 1, we are included in His plans. But it is not a foregone conclusion that we are included in His ongoing plans that he is carrying out right now on the earth. We can better grasp this distinction and this truth by considering again the passage in Acts 15 from two weeks ago. When a question arose about the place of circumcision for Gentile believers, James rooted the judgment of the leadership of the church in the fact that God is sovereignly bringing about his plans, the plans of his heart, known to him from before the foundation of the world. And that he reveals his plan in his word and then works out his plan in a way that can eventually be seen with eyes of faith. You might note that some never did see that. They struggle to have eyes of faith. So notice that in Acts 15 some believers were cooperating with God's plan and were being used for his purpose. They were an active and positive part of that. For example, Peter. Paul and Barnabas. And the the other leaders were accepting of this and recognized this. But some believers were actually opposing and resisting God's plan. says they were believers. And there may have been other believers who were somewhere between, distracted, oblivious, and disconnected. So it's the Lord's gracious will to include us in his plans. He wants that. But God will carry out his plan here on earth according to his will, in his way, and in his time. 
And he will accomplish his plan with or without us. Nothing stands in his way. In Esther 4, verse 14, Mordecai gives a direct expression of this truth when he says to Esther, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So let us ask ourselves, why am I here now for such a time as this? Wouldn't the word lead us to ask that question? Often. We will see in the text today examples of the great privilege of being included in his plan in the time and the place he chooses for us if we yield to his will and receive and respond to his grace with faith toward him, walking in faithful and humble obedience. Said another way, it is a matter of stewardship. We will consider all of today's text in the light of stewardship of our life in Christ and the impact our stewardship has on whether we are included in his plans here and now. Please join me in prayer. The Lord might speak his word and we might have ears to hear that his word might have the effect that he desires. Truly, Father, this is the prayer that I pray, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would speak your words to our hearts, that we would be encouraged and instructed by the examples of the word as you tell us that you intend for it to be. Minister to us. Soften our hearts. Draw us to you us to draw close to yourselves. We know you've promised to draw near to us when we submit to you and draw near. I pray that this would happen for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would like to just go back a couple of verses. Now the chapter 16 heading, just being a heading stuck in there. <clears throat> But Paul, so I'm looking at verse 40 in chapter 15. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, hopefully you all have a map, or maybe just something like this, or if not, maybe you could find one in the back of your Bible. But we just want to take note that starting at Antioch, Paul is going up through. These are the area of the churches where during what we might call the silent years of Paul, he was not silent. He was busy planting churches through this area. And so he's going back through strengthening the churches and bringing this letter from the, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem as well. And everywhere this goes, the testimony seems to be encouragement. There's a reason for that. Because that was a will of God that was expressed, that, sh- that the churches n- might not be uh, upset and burdened 
by man's additions. So as he comes through, now he's heading toward Derby, where the first missionary trip they had come through the sea back that way. So now they're going to go through these churches that they have planted approximately three years ago from this time. But one reason we wanted to read several verses prior to this, uh, about halfway through chapter 15, is to get this whole picture because that's the scenario, the, the potentially the heart burden of those involved. This would be hard for them so, as, as a major uh, conflict. And I just wonder that when Paul looked at Silas, wouldn't that, wouldn't that cause him to remember and grieve? Why is it Silas instead of Barnabas? He's heading out on a missionary journey. It should be Barnabas. I don't know, but I suspect. But as we look at what's happened just in those two verses, regardless of the aching that he might experience, uh, Paul has not let it derail him from the work of God, the work that God had called him to. And he pressed on in faithfulness to the call of God on his life. Paul must have also been thanking God for impressing upon Silas to stay in Antioch before any of this happened. It just seemed good to him to stay. An example of just a nudge. Nothing major, but just a nudge. I mean, this wasn't his home area. He was from Jerusalem. He was a leading man in Jerusalem. And the Lord nudged him to stay. The Lord knows what's going on. He knows what will happen. And he knows what he will do to accomplish his purpose through and in spite of anything. The issue is whether we're going to be a part of it. That was a simple but profound step in light of the mission to preach the gospel beyond the nearby regions, which is what this trip is about. Silas himself is an example of one who was a faithful steward of the grace of God. He was in the position of being chosen by Paul because of his availability to the Lord and his simple steps of obedience. So we come to verse 1 in chapter 16. Then he came to Derbe in Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a certain Jewish woman who believed but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Well spoken of by the brethren. This tells us a few things about Timothy. Timothy did not spend his days and youthful energy on trivial pursuits. Timothy was not well spoken of because of his superior intellect or engaging personality. Now, it's possible somebody might comment along those lines. But we find in the next verse that Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So I think we can be sure that that was not what Paul was looking for. Timothy was well spoken of because he was faithfully serving the purpose of God in the midst of the house of God, the Lord's people 
his church right there, and even a neighboring town. Ask yourself, are you well spoken of by mature believers who know you well? Why or why not? We come to verse 3, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with them. Let's consider why that might have been the case. Paul didn't desire, this is what he didn't want him to go with him because, Paul didn't desire to take Timothy with him because he had a godly mother and grandmother. We find out that he did, that that was his heritage. Pointedly, it's absent fathers for two generations in terms of faith. But that was not what Paul was concerned about. Paul wanted to take Timothy with him because he was yielded to God and had already shown himself to have been faithful in smaller things. We don't know what those things are. We actually don't know uh, how small. But what's clear is that he was bearing abundant fruit of righteousness. This is why he was well spoken of by the brethren in two cities. Timothy had shown himself to be mature in the Lord and in the work of the Lord. It is never about what we know, as in the taking of academic tests about any subject, including what's in the Bible, but rather our stewardship of the life God has given us. Everywhere in the Word we find that the purpose of instruction is sincere faith, good conscience, pure heart, zeal for God. And God is not a respecter of persons. I want to read a few verses from Acts 10. This is the story of Cornelius. Let's pick out a few verses here to emphasize that. that, uh, See, in verse uh, 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth, and this is after he he had come and was in the house. And there have been these couple of awkward exchanges, like, you know, why am I here? Well, because God told me to, his angel told me to send for you. <laughs> Went through a couple of times, and finally, Peter, it's like, the, you know, the vision, <laughs> sheet lowering, took a couple of times. And then he opens his mouth and says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This was a description of Cornelius' life. And God greatly honored him. He was the, the, the breakover, the, the first Gentile. We'll, we'll come back and read a few other verses there at a later time that are also very important and precious. But just note that God is not a respecter of persons. As Jesus said in John 15, our Heavenly Father desires that we bear much fruit, good fruit, fruit that remains. If we bear fruit, He will wisely prune us that we may bear more fruit. The Lord did not hesitate to include Timothy in His plans, 
because he did not have a godly father, he planned to make Timothy even more fruitful in his kingdom, whether he had a godly father or not. Because Timothy had a heart after God and was busy with the Lord's work. And Paul did not hesitate either. He saw in Timothy what he did not see in John Mark. Perhaps one thing that might have come to Paul's mind is something about laying your hand to the plow and then looking back. We know, and Steve shared last week, how the, the wonderful transformation that God worked in John Mark, making him very useful in the kingdom. But that took some things, took a while, and took some things that we don't know about. We're not told. But in contrast, Timothy, out of the picture basically, but he is, as far as from the eyes of Jerusalem and the main bulk of the church, but he's been faithful and well spoken of. He's ready. Now, some may think that Paul's main point of contention in Acts 15, verse 38, which you read this morning, that the main point was mistrust of John Mark. I'm suggesting that perhaps it was less a personal issue and more an issue of the importance Paul put on the work of the gospel. And therefore, it would follow that he would put great importance on faithfulness in the work and willingness to experience hardship for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He expected the same from those laboring with him. In the same letter he exhorted Timothy, Share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. And also, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted and needed a young helper. Not just someone to do menial tasks, though that may have been part of the work, but someone he could count on, someone he could count on immediately, and train for the future. Someone to shoulder the load with him now, and be ready to lead in the future. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2, he spoke of his plan. These were just a few verses from that passage. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was Paul's plan from the beginning. Keep what was entrusted to you. Entrust the same to faithful men and teach them to do the same. This was Paul's plan. And he was following the Lord's plan. Think about the plan that Jesus accomplished. It's exactly what he did. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has no other plan than what Paul just described right there. So while Paul was laboring diligently to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he was also looking for someone to labor alongside him, someone with the same 
heart for the work. Someone with a heart after God's own heart. Remember that in Acts 13, 22, when Paul was preaching in Perga, a synagogue there, part of the message was, quoting, that God had said, I have found David, a man after my own heart. Can you see how similar this is right here? Though not words spoken right then. They were spoken later. But here you can imagine in Acts 16, it's as if Paul comes into Lystra and is saying of Timothy, this one, I found Timothy, a man after my own heart. Later in life, one of the last letters of the churches Paul wrote, he wrote of Timothy in Philippians 2, verse 20, For I have found no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul found his man. God had prepared him. But how had he prepared him? He twisted his arm. Come on, Timothy, got to get you ready. Paul's going to be here in three years. He didn't know Paul was coming. He sure didn't know that he's going to ask him to go with him. Consider this. How long was Jesus with his disciples training them? About three years. Jesus, face to face, with him all the time for three years. How long was Timothy in a newly founded church in a land far outside of Jerusalem or Antioch before Paul showed up again? About three years. Now think about the kind of young man this is. Ready to be singled out. Immediately, Paul saw him, heard about him, that this man needs to come with me. Can we say that uh, this young man has been with Jesus? Like Paul, they were kindred spirits, and Paul recognized it. So I want to just make this statement that what we see here in the life of Timothy is a matter of stewardship. What I mean by that is not the handling of money, but the handling of his life. Do we not realize that God has given us our lives here as a stewardship? And when we come to Christ, when we are in Him, our life in Christ is a stewardship. When we stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be dealing with sins that Christ has already put away on the cross. We're dealing with how we lived our lives here. This is a matter of stewardship. And Timothy gave back to the Lord what he had been given. Everything. His whole life. Available to God. This is not a cakewalk here. This work would not be easy. It was challenging and dangerous, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Timothy knew it was dangerous. He had probably been there three years ago, earlier when Paul was stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. That was his hometown. And Paul has come back. He was probably among the disciples gathered around when a badly bruised and bloody Paul woke up, got up, 
came back into town and left the next day and walked with Barnabas for 30 miles on foot to Derby, the next city. Possibly to face the same experience. Timothy was aware of this. This was the same Paul, the same dangerous work that he was being asked to join. Indeed, being called to join. And Timothy said yes. So, turning back to Acts 16, we look at verse 3 again. Paul had wanted him to go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now that can hit us funny, isn't it? Especially since Paul's carrying around a letter from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem that has purposely squashed that? Well, not exactly. What they squashed was circumcision as part of salvation. And they had purposely not put it in such a way as, as to be you know, uh, an issue at all. It was freedom. That was the intention of the letter. The only things that were put in there were not, there's the, non, non, the non-negotiable of sexual immorality, and then three other things that had to do with uh, respecting and one another, Jews and Greeks, and not doing something that would be just horribly offensive to them, because they needed to live together in Christ. So this circumcision, it actually avoided an offense to the Jews. The Jews here were not making this an issue, but because they were aware of his background, it was taking an issue off the table to widen the appeal of the gospel. As Paul said elsewhere, all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And yet we can see an example, a contrasting example that we'll look at in a moment where the purity and truth of the gospel was indeed non-negotiable. So he avoided an offense to the Jews but not on the basis of being a requirement for salvation. So further doors were opened to the gospel among Greeks, both inside and outside the synagogue. And this was consistent with the works and the word of God that was noted in Acts 15 at the council and the encouraging letter and directives from the apostles and elders. Now by contrast, Titus, another worker, was not circumcised. He was a Greek. And when he was with Paul in Jerusalem, the leadership of the church did not have a problem with that, even though he was a Greek. It was when some Jews there began insisting that Titus had to be circumcised. Paul refused to bend. He withstood them. It was an issue of the truth and purity of the gospel. And if you want to look at that more, the whole letter to Galatians, really, much of the letter is dealing with this. It's like the launching point for that letter. So if we look at verse 4 and 5 in chapter 16, now it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul and his team resumed visiting the churches and delivering the decisions of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And this further makes clear that Timothy's circumcision was not at odds with the decision and the purpose of the letter. So then when we see the 
passage. I'd like to take it pretty much as a whole, uh, verses 6 through 12. And in these verses, we see several instances of the Lord actively and strongly giving specific direction. Just read through it quickly. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Suddenly, when we move into this passage, we've got strong action taken. The Lord's not nudging. He's blocking, forbidding to preach the word in Asia. That's what they're out there for, isn't it? To preach the gospel. So why are they forbidden? We're not told. Only the Holy Spirit knows at this point. So after they had come to Mysia, which, if you look at this, they must have come up here. This is Phrygia. So they, they get over here, and they're, they're wanting to go turn left into Asia. Holy Spirit forbids it. So they move on to Mysia, which is kind of the southern, southwestern part of Bithynia. And they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, they can't turn left, they can't turn right. So they're, they're just going to go on, but they're not sure what's going on. So, they came down to Troas, just a seaport. It's there, in a vision, it appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, it's probably a good conclusion, but they're still going to have to move forward and pay attention, right? Like they were before. They were paying attention. They didn't just go busting down the walls toward Asia, or Mysia, or Bithynia. They recognized that the Holy Spirit was not permitting them. Now they're moving forward, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, the colony. And we were staying there in that city for some days. I, one thing I noted here is that once they got going, they, they just kept going, but there's a reason for that. They don't get into Macedonia until they get into Philippi. Actually, Neapolis is not part of Macedonia. It's still part of Thrace. If you, if you have a map there, it's the boundary lines. I don't, it's not showing here, but it's when they go all the way to Philippi. So you can see that in rapid succession, just going forward. Why? Because God is calling them Macedonia. They're, in, they're zealous to get there. If we look at this as a whole, it, there's some things that kind of give us pause, and that would be a good thing. Just stop and think about it. Uh, I, I remember at some point in, in, in years past, I would, I would look at this text and just almost had the idea that Paul was confused. I, I just imagine maybe he was still reeling from the conflict. I don't think so. <laughs> I look at this closer. Now, they're receiving uh, careful instruction from God. 
their general calling is to go out and preach the gospel. So they're trying to do that. The Lord has a specific purpose and a specific way and a specific timing. In our day of cars and jets, the travel aspect may not seem that big of a deal to us. But Paul and his co-workers traveled 200 miles from the time that they came through Phrygia. About 200 miles on foot while being kept from preaching the gospel. The whole reason they were there. And we're not told why and they weren't told why. They may have been surprised but we did not hear of complaining. It's not, they're not saying this is my mission trip, Lord. It's not theirs. It's the Lord's. And their lives and their feet are not their own. They're the Lord's. They are his servants to obey and his stewards of his message. That he has given them his message because of their stewardship of their walk with Christ to put themselves in a position of being able to be used this way. It's not accidental. It's not arbitrary. So, they are here at Troas, a seaport, the Holy Spirit has not let them go left or right. So now what's the choice? They're either going to turn back or go forward. And that's when the Spirit helps them with that decision. I just want to read one scripture out of John. <clears throat> the context is different, but the principle is so important. I want to bring this up about knowing the will of God. Talk about a couple of things here. In John chapter 7. Verse 17, I'll just pick up about 16, when Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. It's, it's given specific to this, this particular context, but that, that is a sound principle in the word of God. If you are not prepared to do his will, if you would like to just find out what it is so you can pass judgment on it, you likely won't hear. God is under no obligation to tell anyone what his will for them is unless they're ready to do it. The reason why, even though this odd circumstance that we read here, the reason why it worked out like it did because they are the Lord's servants ready to do his will. And he leads them through a surprising path with surprising narrowness and timing. A few months back we were going through James in chapter 1. Think, think back about chapter 1 in James about double-mindedness. Let the, not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. There's another way that principle is presented. We may not always, his will, him letting us know, it may not always be when we want to know, but sometimes God has a purpose in delay. In just a few weeks, as we move through Acts, we'll be into Acts 19. Later, there was a great harvest in Asia. That was the first turn we're trying to make? It wasn't the Lord's time. Later, Paul spent over two years there 
tremendous things happening. Great miracles. The whole, the whole of Asia, just from surrounding Asia, just kind of moved out. That whole region, if you look at it on your map, it's large. Lots of churches came out of that. That was the Lord's plan and timing. But that's not where we're at here. <clears throat> so, I just want to read Romans 15, verse 4. Just a reminder of why we're going through this this morning. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the encouragement, through endurance, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We have the instruction and encouragement of the word, and endurance and hope in the Lord. That's how Jesus walked in his time here. If that was good enough for Jesus, then it will need to be good enough for us. A servant is not greater than his master. That's why you see Paul and the team ready and zealous as they take off to Macedonia. They immediately took off. And so then, verse 13 says, On the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, verse 12 told us that they had been staying there for a few days, so they'd had an opportunity to find out uh, what this place was like. Never been here before. And they find out that, well, there's, first of all, there's not a synagogue. And one of the things that would sometimes happen is that by a riverside or out of town a bit would be where uh, believers of God would, would gather apart, just for prayer. Not much else went on, maybe, but they would gather on the Sabbath. So, that's why they showed up here. It says, we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. The women who met there. Where are the men? That's who was there. They had come all the way across, hundreds of miles on foot. From where they left, probably 500 and then on a ship. And they get there and there's a few women. And one hears them. But God has sent them there God is visiting this people to take out of them a people for himself. We should never despise small beginnings. For God, all this way for one soul, if it was going to be so, hey, he came all the way from heaven to a cross. I think we can handle going a few miles. So one one curiosity here in this, this passage, 13 through 15, says that Lydia, a certain woman named Lydia, heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, and yet she was here in Philippi, not Thyatira. So uh, it's hard to, we, we don't know, but somehow this seems to be her at least semi-permanent dwelling. Uh, maybe it's just saying that she was originally from Thyatira. But most importantly, 
It's a woman who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. I want to point out here a couple very important things. Sometimes in our day we like to split hairs and, and uh, we insist on determining which side wins on something. We, hear, we, we see here two things. One, the Lord took initiative and opened her heart. But what did he open her heart to? To hear. Both are true. Both are very important. Many of us hear the word of God sitting right here in these chairs. Does that mean we go and do it and make his will part of our lives in every way possible, in every instance? I wish it were so. In your life and my life. But his grace is available. She took the grace available. She heard. This was a woman who worshipped God, but it's also indicating here that she was a woman of faith, and the Lord opened a much further understanding, didn't he? Now she's hearing the, the whole gospel message, and she heeded the things spoken by Paul. She took, took it in, she believed, and she took action. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. I don't want to dwell a long time on this one point, but just, just because, for one thing, I'm going to lead from this point to, to the next thing I, I want to share with you. I do want to touch upon the fact that, it, that her, she and her household were baptized. It doesn't even say she and her household listened to the word of God and believed. But we can see in a lot of instances. We'll see one next week. I kind of hate to go forward in the chapter. It's a really good one. But I'm going to let Steve do that. I'm going to go back to Acts 10 again. And just look at some things here. In the instance of Cornelius. I'll pick out a few verses that are key. Verse 24. This is as they were preparing. They're expecting Peter to show up. They've sent for him. Verse 24. The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I just want to simply say, this is normal. If you've heard from the Lord, he said, I've got a message from you. And, and this man was a lover of God. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman centurion. But he was a man of faith. And God is going to answer his prayers. He promised him that earlier. He'd send an angel to tell him. And so what's he do? He calls together his relatives and close friends. This is natural. This woman would do this. <clears throat> Verse 33 Peter is or Cornelius is answering Peter yet again, uh, saying, No, it's I'm wanting to hear from you. <laughs> Cornelius can't tell him what the message is supposed to be. 
He's expecting Peter to have that message. So he says again, So I sent to you immediately, and you have done very well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present. To hear, we're all present before God, key thing. To hear all the things commanded you by God. And then verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Uh, One moment. Left my notebook here in which I have received this a few days ago and I just was uh, struck by something that uh, Pete Frank writing here. I just want to read a little snippet if I can find it. Oh, here it is. He's relating some, some uh, words from a Pastor Nia, speaking of uh, leading an outreach team to a, to a village in Vietnam. He says, because of the poor recent crops, his family was in financial hardship. He's talking about a farmer that he has been speaking to. Then I began to share the gospel with him. I asked him if he believed in the Creator who provides essential needs for our lives. He said that he understood that the Creator provides such things as soil, air, sun, rain. I continued and asked him if his soul was prepared for leaving the world one day. Then I introduced him to Jesus Christ. I told him about man's sin and the salvation and forgiveness Christ offers. John three sixteen and 17. Thanks be to the Lord, Mr. Tien, believed the gospel. And what do you suppose he did next? The man has heard the word and believed the gospel. He gathered his wife and four children in front of me. Tell them. <laughs> Nobody has to explain what to do there. If, you, if you've heard the gospel and you believe and you've been set free from sin in Christ Jesus... You want everybody you know to know. And certainly you start with family. I explained the salvation of the Creator through Jesus Christ and led them all to the Lord. They wanted me to tell them more about the Bible, which I was glad to do. We are currently discipling them in their new faith. So just keeping that in mind, because I'm going to draw some contrasts from the examples we have here in the Word, and examples that I just read that happened today. But first I want to emphasize that looking at Lydia's response to the Gospel, it's a matter of stewardship. Lydia gave back to the Lord what she had been given, because what we see, even though it's, it's a little obscure in the wording, we, we listen to this and we think, well, she just invited him to stay at her house. Sounds like a pretty successful businesswoman, perhaps has a large house and plenty of room. 
so she's housing the, the team, evangelistic team. But if we just flip and read the last verse of this chapter, this was after, I'm not going to give away too much, but they're out of prison. And so they came out of prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. It, it's not a real bold statement, but we have an indication that Paul has only been in town a few days. But we have at least two old households that are now walking with Christ. The implication is that there's more now already, and they're meeting at Lydia's house. That's where the church is meeting. It's already happening. She did more than just offer them a place to stay. What she had, she gave to the Lord. That's the principle. So, what does, how, how do we see this spoken of in the gospel? Consider the parables, short parables, about the man who finds a treasure in the field, covers it up, sells everything, buys the field. The merchant, pearl merchant, finds one pearl of great price, he sells everything, buys that pearl. That's illustrating. We sell everything and buy the great treasure, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Selling everything, that's not just your stuff, but your life. One who does not give up, yes, in his own life, cannot be my disciple. So I want us to consider now, because it really struck me that uh, when I consider how in this, even in the matter, I, I don't want to dwell on it at all, but just to acknowledge that there is a, a, a sticky wicket concerning uh, some various teachings about, you know, you and your household, as far as I want to go there. But what I want to do is consider, why is it that we have such a struggle with that? We look, out, we look in the Word, they don't have a struggle with that. In Vietnam, they don't have a struggle with that. Certain national, ethnic, or family cultures have characteristics that are noticeable and can sometimes become a reputation. We see an example of this in Titus 1, in verse 12 and 13. It's pretty hard words. Paul is writing to Titus and says, one of them, a Cretan, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans, Titus is in Crete, left there to tie up some business. And Cretans, he says, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, that's stinging. And Paul says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So this is what I want to ask. What about our culture? What about American culture? What was it at the beginning I'm not going to present quotes, but I just want to just throw out here that I think many of you would recognize, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Tocqueville, uh, from France, that that came in, just did an astoundingly bold and honest assessment 
of what makes, they just wonder, what makes the United States of America so great back then? His conclusion, if I could just real simple summary, goodness, industriousness, selflessness. Now there's some seeds of independence there, independent spirit, no, no doubt about that. What he was seeing is that directed toward goodness. I ask you, is that directed toward goodness now? It absolutely is not. It's been a significant change. That's our culture in general, but what about us? What about now? Jesus said we are the light of the world, the church, his people. What about now? Are we set apart unto him? Are we together, a city set on a hill, giving light? This culture is given over to personal success and personal pleasures. And now increasingly to, because it's where it leads, rampant sinfulness. It is all around us. But I ask, are we letting that or the effects of that seep in? Remember the old long-term analogy of the boiled frog? Don't forget it. It applies. So I find Timothy's example in light of this very challenging in light of what I see when I look around. And I want to share some thoughts from this. It's mostly from Timothy, consideration from Timothy. It, <clears throat> it's hard work to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You might recall that from Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. But there's another part to that that came before. Fleeing youthful lusts. It's hard work to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, but it's impossible work if we never get around to fleeing youthful lusts. A prerequisite, if you will. The same word of God that exhorts us to lay aside the sins that so easily beset us also commands us to gouge out and cut off that which causes us to stumble. And I implore us, to recognize the difference. There is a difference here. You might consider how, think about this, it's not that hard to see this difference here. Some things, things, are like heavy items or clothing that weigh us down. I'm thinking of Hebrews 12, laying aside things that hinder. Some things will weigh us down to keep us from running the race. Other things are distracting us and waste energy and resources God has given us for stewardship. And these things keep us from running the race as well. It keeps us from straining toward the goal with our eyes on Jesus. But beloved... There are dangerous sins of the flesh that actually become a part of us. 
I say that in this sense, that they cannot be simply laid aside. Else, why did Christ say, gouge them out, cut it off? You don't do that if it's just a piece of clothing you just drop off to take it out of your way. Some of these are like cancers that eat away and drain our life and health in Christ. And without drastic action in response to the word of God, some of us in this room may find ourselves standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Because this is the basis, stewardship. How have we stewarded what he has given us freely in Christ? We find ourselves standing before the judgment seat of Christ in shame. An unfaithful steward with nothing to offer the Lord of glory but a squandered life. But there are other sins of the flesh that are more like a riptide that we toy with at our peril. Consider, we have a, we sometimes call the, the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Samson is mentioned there. There came a day in the life of Samson when he said, I will arise as before, but he could not. Paul in his first letter to Timothy mentions some who, because they did not attend to their souls, they did not guard their heart and preserve a good conscience and sincere faith, they shipwrecked their faith. I don't know that I know exactly what that is. I don't want to find out. Which would you choose? A squandered life or a shipwrecked faith? Your life in Christ is a precious stewardship with an eternal purpose. And Satan is a roaring lion and you must resist him steadfast in the faith, having first submitted to God. The Lord has already said of certain sins that peril your souls, Cut it off, gouge it out. And the Lord also says to you again today, as he has said in Proverbs, my son, give me your heart. That would be all of it. If we would not be among those whose love grows cold, we must be lovers of the truth. We must continue in the things we have learned. If indeed we have been assured them, and know from whom we have learned him. Some words from Paul to Timothy, Second Timothy. There's also a scripture in Second Thessalonians, chapter two. I mentioned about love growing cold. We, I think you remember some of the admonitions and warnings. Paul, that in the last days they would be lovers of themselves, love growing cold. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, though, it speaks of the coming of a lawless one, according to the working of Satan. In verse 10 in particular, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, they might be saved. And we can think of this, you might think of that in terms of saved, salvation in Christ, 
I believe it's more than that. There are some Paul spoke of in the waning days of his life, ones that had been had their hand to the plow for some time and turned back. He was grieving over it. He grieved over others, as I mentioned earlier, he mentioned by name those who had shipwrecked their faith. These are perilous times. Yes, but the day is drawing near. So do not shrink back. Instead, we must strain forward. Say with Paul, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, give it all up. It's the only proper response to the Lord of heaven and our Savior. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, Paul says. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us learn and be encouraged by the example of Timothy. Though he had some disadvantages, his family history, no man in his life during his growing up years. That would have been tough. But he had a whole heart. He was wholehearted and faithful steward of what God had given him. He gave himself back to God in joyful service to his Savior and Lord. He was faithful with what he had. And God gave him much more and used him greatly. Isn't that what Jesus taught? And Timothy wasn't the only one who gave everything in service to the Lord. What about Timothy's mother, Eunice? Imagine what a joy and blessing this Timothy that we, we got a glimpse of today would have been to his mother. For years she had faithfully sown in tears without the help of a godly husband. Her husband was either disinterested in the faith or maybe even absent. That detail is not revealed. But then for those three years after Paul and Barnabas had brought the message of the gospel to Lystra, she had reaped joy. Joy in Christ and joy in her son that had given himself wholeheartedly to the Lord and was growing in the Lord by leaps and bounds. Timothy was known and loved and appreciated by the brethren, not only in Lystra but also in neighboring Iconium. What a fine example and blessing to the body of Christ in that area. Now think of his mother. Now Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. She might not see him for a long time. Or maybe never again. No doubt she too recalled Paul's stoning right there in Lystra. That could be the fate of her Timothy. What would her life be without her Timothy? Who would take care of her in later years? Some of you mothers surely can relate to what she would have faced. She gave him up. Gave him back to the Lord, like Hannah did with Samuel. Even before that final day, when we all stand before Christ, she was returning to the Lord what he had given her for a time. Only what she was giving him back was much more. What a return and investment on the Lord's investment 
She was faithful. We don't have any details, but you can be sure of this. She was faithful. Because look at the outcome. He was ready when Paul got there. She gave much of herself as well by giving him up. But in comparison, an eternal weight of glory far outweighing our light and momentary affliction, the word says. And God is not a respecter of persons. If we labor here with our eyes on a city that that is not made with hands, he will not be ashamed to welcome us as his own. So dear sisters, love God and serve him with gladness and hope. And if God has given you children, a major part of your service will be toward them. Don't just give them life and home and food and clothing. Teach them the word of God and train them as disciples, as Eunice did. Live for eternity. All will not do the work of an apostle, as Timothy was called to do, but all are called to give wholehearted service in whatever role and place the Lord Jesus. That's his choice. But tell your children this. And prepare them for it so that they'll be ready to say yes to God. Fathers, how much more does what I've been saying to the mothers apply to us? As heads of our homes, as stewards who will give account of our management of His resources. That includes our family as well as ourselves. And as family shepherds who will give an account of His flock in our care. Does it not behoove us to lay aside every weight that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles us? How much more then should we strenuously exercise faith toward God and with godly fear cut off any and every deadly sin that wars against our souls and against the souls of those who are watching in our own homes and who know us better than we can imagine? The absolute priority is to do it in obedience to Christ our Lord, as it were for him alone. And yet, we should also remember that we will give an account. Do not give Satan a foothold in your own home. If there is a stumbling block, do not rest until it is removed. We cannot train our children to be soldiers of the cross unless we ourselves are soldiers of the cross. Let's take it up and follow him. I thank God for fathers, for fathers who love God wholeheartedly, who love their families sincerely and sacrificially, and who faithfully train and disciple their children. This is God's will for us, to prepare them to be oaks of righteousness in the house of the Lord, load bearers in his kingdom like Timothy. Thank God for mothers who love and serve Christ, loving their husbands, loving their children, And who, like Timothy's mother Eunice, show their faith by their works. And thank God for the example of Timothy. And for the younger men right here among us. Endeavoring to live upright lives in these difficult days. From a good conscience and a pure heart. Demonstrating their faith by works of righteousness. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
<coughs> and thank God for the example of Ruth. Young ladies, perhaps you're thinking I was going to leave you out. <clears throat> Our text today focuses on Timothy, and though there is also Lydia there. My mind went toward contemplating the story of Ruth. I think it's more helpful, and I want to encourage you with this example, just a short summary The beautiful story of Ruth is not part of this text, but it's a fitting parallel account of one who gave herself unreservedly to God and was greatly rewarded for her faith. Naomi and her husband were journeying in a foreign land when Naomi's husband suddenly died, leaving Naomi a widow. Then Naomi's two sons died soon after, leaving her destitute and alone in a foreign land, except for her two daughters-in-law, now widows themselves. Naomi, bitter and devastated, decided to return to the land of Israel. At Naomi's urging, one daughter-in-law turned back to her homeland, hoping to find another husband. But Ruth would not leave Naomi, proclaiming her trust in the God of Israel and her selfless love for Naomi and her need, even though Naomi held out no hope for her to find a husband in Israel. With faith toward God, Ruth sacrificially served her mother-in-law with love and grace, exhibiting a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in the sight of God. So, like Timothy, Ruth's circumstances were not ideal. Perhaps in several ways, it was much more difficult. But her faith and works were greatly rewarded because she had put herself under the Lord's care he provided for her. He gave her a kind and loving husband and a child, Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. Ruth, a foreign widow, became the great-grandmother of King David, the man after God's own heart, and was an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing, what grace, Maybe David's heart after God was first in his great-grandmother. Think about Scripture's witness for Timothy. So the Lord wants to say to you, dear young sisters, and to all of us, our faithful service to him flowing from a heart of love and faith is never forgotten and will be richly rewarded. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I thank you, Father, for your good word and for your precious promises. I pray that you would have your way in our hearts, that we would have... an understanding of your word, of the necessity in order to be a good steward, to return to you, to give up to you all our personal rights, 
about all the things with all the things that you have given us. You've given us much. But you have not given it anything for our personal gain or for our personal pleasure, but that we might come to know you through Christ and give everything back to you in joyful service, believing you, believing your promises. We're called to be people of faith, to be people of the promise, every promise of your word. May your Holy Spirit that guided Paul and his team today be near us and speak to our hearts and give encouragement and instruction through the word that we may endure and hope through faith. Amen.